of the 23 students tested, only two found the experience unpleasant. Some even called it exhilarating. A variety of dream states, mystical states, a lot of religious allegory. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the IWMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project, where you can get your dose of media criticism, nostalgia, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And this week, I have made him watch a movie rather than a TV series. We're back on a film stretch for right now. Yep. And this was definitely an odd one. It was. This And this is a, an odd movie, but it is a movie that had a great deal of impact on me. I keep saying that about these things because that's why I select them. But this one is another one that had a big impact, a big, big impact on the bookshelves that are behind me here. And this is one I'm amazed I'd never seen before because, my goodness, there is so much of the stuff I run into that is taking at least a little inspiration from the way this movie just presented itself. I am um, I am bewildered I'd not watched this before now. It was very influential, I think, on movies in the 80s. And the movie we're talking about is Altered States, directed by Ken Russell from the, the novel by Patty Chayefsky, although Patty Chayefsky removed himself from the production and really didn't want to be associated with it. Oh, it's one of those? It's kind of a, a Princess Bride, the movie is nothing like the book kind of stories? You know, I've read the novel since seeing the the movie. I read the novel, and it's not that different. It is a very different ending. But I think that Patty Chayefsky, who's best known as a screenwriter, wrote some amazing movies, and Network is probably his most famous. But I think he just did not get along with Ken Russell, who directed this, and who went on to direct some even weirder movies, believe it or not, that... Chayefsky essentially put a pseudonym on the his screenwriting credit, took himself out of the production, and it, it was very much a Ken Russell movie. His other movies are weirder? Yes. How? I'll have to check to see if the dates match, the dates when I watched them, match our criteria for this podcast. But if they do, one of these days, you might wind up watching things like Gothic or Lair of the White Worm and other things that I probably should never have watched myself and <laughs> probably should not make you watch, but I might. Yes, this... Ken Russell made some weird, weird movies, okay. even compared to Altered States. Okay, then. Because this is the movie that interrupted sex scene with a, an existential crisis that somehow leads back into more sex scene. And that's kind of a summary of this movie because it combines <laughs> it, it. It is all about the intersection of sex and love, and cosmic truth and personal subjective meaning, and the real quote unquote real world and the neurology through which we perceive the real world. It is it is such a heady movie, and it is it ties all this stuff together, and it is it's exactly what I would grab onto as an an over-intellectual high schooler who wasn't quite as smart as he thought he was, but just loved all of this smart-seeming stuff. I loved this movie. I saw this when it was on HBO, like is probably a trend here for movies. Saw this when it was on HBO, probably younger than I should have, and grabbed onto it and it then influenced so much of what i then sought out to read and and, uh, and find out about and that's it's almost a reverse to the way i'm running into it because i'm i've dealt with a lot more of my media consumption outside of this show there there are shows on tv and such i watch but a lot of what i see and interact with is online i am I, an avid follower of various different content creators on YouTube. I a- attend Twitch streamings of from various people. And there's something about the way the internet culture has found this quick editing, this odd juxtaposition aspects that is so much what this movie does. And so it's like, I have seen 
all of the things you have influenced and now I'm coming to this. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're saying you found this and then found all of these other things based on its influence in that sense. It's such a, like the opposite direction of right. arriving at it. This was, was really amazing in its time for its, its rapid editing. It's flashy, literally sometimes visuals, the, the discordant music that it, put on top of some of this stuff, as well as having a really strong melodic score for for the appropriate times. It was, it was a terrific score, I thought, too. Oh, yeah. The the music in this was excellently done. I, I don't have many notes on that. I do have a note saying, enter the Vuvuzela cave, but that's a separate scene-by-scene <laughs> scene thing. Well, before we get too much farther in breaking down the different parts of it, like the editing and the, the music and everything else... Let's talk a little bit about what this movie is about. And this, I think this will be a spoilerific uh, podcast. We can, we'll go ahead. It's an old movie. It came out in 1980, I believe, or 81. And, um, you know, anybody who's, anyone who is interested can definitely go see it. It is about a scientist. He's a neurologist or a neurobiologist. I forget his exact discipline, but he is... And this is played by William Hurt, I think his first uh, feature starring role, at least. He is studying the, the, the link between mental states and physiology. And he's studying, for example, um, schizophrenics and how their physicality can change to match their schizophrenic view of themselves. And then he goes on to be, he's experimenting with, with isolation tanks early and late in the movie. And he's also doing experiments with essentially ayahuasca, this drug used by shaman in the, uh, like central Mexico who are still, as they described, it's still practicing old Toltec rituals. And it's this combination of mushrooms and uh, uh, other, you know, DMT bearing, tryptamine bearing, uh, vegetation. And he goes on this trip with this. He takes some of it back to Boston, to, to Harvard to study and things get weird from there. Absolutely. At the same time, I can also summarize it as jerk who pushes his own family away, goes to Mexico has some really real weird vegetables stew and then has success in his career. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with the success in his career part, but that does it, you 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 make it sound like it's a um uh like a Mel Brooks comedy. Or... <laughs> kind of. I, he succeeded in what he was attempting to do as part of his career. How good of science he was doing at that point, how good at said career he was being, is up for debate. But he did succeed in what he was attempting to do in his career. So, I make a, I make a loophole case there. But I, I kind of can phrase it as such, because the story is definitely important to this, but it feels like it's the, the who and what is there is as much a vessel for what it wants to talk about as what you're here to attend. Okay, yeah, I guess that is... I don't know that it promoted his career as a researcher, as a Harvard professor or anything, but it's early on. His goal is somehow to find ultimate truth and find the connection between the divine and the physical and our subjective states and what we can possibly know and and also where we come from and what our origins are when it comes to human consciousness. So, yeah, I suppose he does start to succeed in that. It's a bleak sort of success, but he does succeed in it. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah, I guess so. I still think it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm based on your description. I'm now trying to imagine altered states directed by Blake Edwards, but um, that would be a very different movie. I, I'd, I'd watch that. Pretty cool. <laughs> so, as much as our main character there, though, isn't the best of guys. He oh, is, no. He is intentionally written as this obsessive madman who focuses on this attempt at finding this truth to the detriment of everything else. 
And it's really the other characters then that are around him that have personalities that you want to watch things happen with in that sense. True. It's the the most interesting parts of the movie are watching all of these other characters relate to and respond to him. His character, Edward Jessup, the the, the scientist played by William Hurt, is he's not very multidimensional. He is obsessed with this this quest for truth and that truth is about like what is the self and he wants to encounter and define what is the ultimate self probably as a means to transcend it and get away from it because he is so self-centered but there's not a lot of other dimension to him he defines himself in that way everybody else admires his intelligence and his intensity and either loves him or hates him or is afraid for him and therefore they want to help him do the things that they're trying to convince him not to do. So a lot of it is ultimately the love story between Dr. Edward Jessup and uh, the woman he marries early in the movie. Emily Jessup, played by Blair Brown? Yes. She and she is good. Every the whole cast in this, I think, is really good. Oh yeah. In in some ways, though, I don't see William Hurt as Eddie Jessup as the main character of this story. He is the, or, he's he's the he's the focus character. He's the character that we follow. But the primary character in my mind is Arthur Rosenberg. He is kind of, he is our surrogate in a lot of ways. Oh, he is absolutely the audience surrogate. Uh, our Dr. Rosenberg is played by Bob Balaban. Again, great performance. And he is a colleague of Jessup's who did some isolation tank, sensory deprivation tank experiments with him, like when they were both students or postdocs at Columbia. Uh, and then they wind up getting together again when they're both at Harvard. Years later, when they're both you know, well moved on with their careers. And yeah, he is the, he's kind of, I mean, he's a scientist in his own right, but he's playing the game and he's moving along with his career. And he's one of these people who gets pulled into the orbit of Edward Jessup. And, and yet he is always fairly level-headed and reasonable in what he sees and what he acknowledges as real. He's kind of always taking the, okay, let's find the rational explanation for this. When things are obviously contrary to all those rational explanations, he'll admit that and freak out a little bit. You want to see his character as the audience surrogate. He spends most of the movie sitting down, watching screens and monitors about what's happening to our air quotes protagonist oh right and the one time he is in full danger it's because he was doing that that's right he is he's the kind of the the spotter he's out watching the um the eegs uh and the other readouts uh and monitoring things while jessup is in the isolation tank so his actions yeah, make him a yeah. surrogate in that sense right and then the other character uh is um Dr. Mason Parrish, another Harvard doctor, played by uh, by Charles Hayde. And I like him a lot because he is always stomping around and yelling and cursing. But once again, he can't stay away from what it is Jessup is doing with these weird experiments of his. Yeah, I, I've got him in my notes as Yosemite Sam because he's just <laughs> got that kind of anger and exuberance at the same time. Ah! And, and a little bit of that kind of westerny a flair to him in the first introduction all the time but yeah he is he is going to like get angry and yell at them about this i'm gonna show these someone who can read it right because you're reading it wrong that's all there is to it because <laughs> no one's going to tell me you de-differentiated your goddamn genetic structure for four goddamn hours and then reconstitute it i'm a professor of endocrinology <laughs> at the harvard medical school i'm an attending physician at the peter bent brigham hospital i'm a contributing editor to the american journal of endocrinology and i'm a fellow and vice president of the eastern association of endocrinologists and president of the journal club and i'm not going to listen to any more of your capitalistic quantum friggin dumb limbo mumbo jumbo i'm going to show these to a radiologist but he'll also like 
get an entire scene where we he we see him gather up things and immediately throw them into the incinerator with this certainty in a I don't even believe that's what just happened. But I dang ain't gonna take any chances. <laughs> I'm going to make sure this is gone. Yeah, you're I love the Yosemite Sam. It's like if Yosemite Sam were a world renowned Harvard endocrinologist, it would be that, that yeah, character exactly. of the Mason Parish. And you're right, he is the, he I think he yells the loudest and curses the most when he is trying to convince himself that what he is observing is not true. Because he's a good enough scientist and a good enough observer that it's hard for him to dismiss what he's observing. And now that we've got the characters, we've got this this group of four characters and three three kind of orbiting Jessup. Let's talk a little bit more about what he's actually doing and what uh, what happens with this. He goes to Mexico with a guide to investigate and learn about this uh, this ceremony that involves this um, tryptamine drug, and he participates in the ceremony and has the first of many really weird psychedelic trip uh, experiences that are portrayed weirdly and well by by Ken Russell and the people working with him. Yeah. We see one instance of this editing before that moment where he has like that existential crisis moment. But this is the first time where it becomes the the main big thing of we're having a, a, a trip here. And they do a lot with editing there of visual symbolism and like shot reverse shot cuts but changing something in between the reverse shot so that that disconnect immediately has to tie a to b because there'll be things where it's like here is him here's what he's looking at and then we turn back to what according to the pattern we're all used to should be him again but instead, it's superimposed with a picture of, like, a giant mushroom-shaped rock. So suddenly, mushroom is him. Oh, wait. And there's all this back and forth going on just on this, I, I like, fun with teal screen. We're going to layer stuff. We're going to overexpose stuff and expose stuff into things. But it's not just for, oh, random. It's always to make sure that when A and B are layered together, the audience gets C. Right, and there were some very specific threads in that hallucination scene. Part of it was, we're actually seeing Jessup where he is. He's in this cave with a bunch of, of uh, indigenous people in Mexico. And yet, even though we're watching him, it is kind of the subjectivity because there's like flame and sparklers and all kinds of things going around. And I like the fact that they did that with practical effects. They actually had sparklers shooting around uh, the actor, because it ma- it kind of made it seem as real as anything else, as a hallucination might. And then intercut with that were scenes of like, him and Emily in a garden dressed in white suits, and one moment they're eating a sherbet, and the next they're being confronted by a serpent, and then the serpent is strangling Jessup. And then there's also... Emily's there in the desert, and so is he, and they turn into statues, and they erode as the the wind must be blowing for a hundred years or something. And you're right, they layer these, and there are probably more than I'm forgetting, that they turn into something more. And obviously there's the symbolism about him and the marriage that he's just separated himself from, and uh, and, and what how he feels about that, and and yet how connected he still is with Emily. But I feel I always feel like there's a lot in that scene more than I can even articulate. Oh yeah, there must be hundreds of just essays trying to break down what's going on in these because these are cinematography dense in a way with all this quick editing. This is symbolism heavy in that sense. And character-wise, they do an interesting job of setting us up for that, in that we've seen a little bit of that from Jessup before during these early isolation tank experiments. And we've heard him tell the story about 
how he lost his faith when his father, who was religious, died, and the last words that his father was, was saying was how horrible the end was. And we and, and then we see an hallucination in the isolation tank where there's all this religious symbolism and the, the end of religion is, is symbolized. So in some ways we're seeing the drug amplify what we know Jessup is inclined to anyway. And he's they Emily's describing him as a, a mad monk. And even the uh, the the introduction of Jessup to Emily, she's he's him in like silhouetted in the, the bright white light of a doorway that he's coming into a party uh through and it's like this, this is the, the no, it's not a meat cute it's a meat christ he's obviously <laughs> this weird savior figure oh yeah so we're seeing his intent his tendency towards hallucination and we're seeing the way other people are relating to him and expecting to see him as this amazing figure and all that's kind of coming together in this hallucination and uh, as thinking of that party scene and some of those early scenes as well this is a movie that does not like its establishing shots it will intentionally jump from like time A to time B, and it won't tell you how much time has passed. You have to kind of infer some of that based on what the people just said. And that means that even the things that aren't in these early flashes kind of flow in that same odd interconnection. But when we do get these flashes amplified, it comes all the stronger because of that. Because that editing without context just speeds up. Right. So Jessup goes through this ceremony and this hallucination experience, and supposedly during this, he killed a giant lizard of some kind in the desert. And I'm not talking Godzilla, I'm talking about you know, a big lizard. <laughs> and that would be a cool movie. Godzilla versus Edward Jessup? I'd watch that. We've got, we've got Godzilla versus Kong coming out, yeah. We, can, can we add him in there? <laughs> And, um, and, and, um, and Jessup is denying that this really happened. And at the same time, he says, I want to bring a bunch of this back with me to, to study it, maybe synthesize it. That was an awful experience, and they're telling completely things that are wrong. I want to go again. So he does. He, he brings a bunch of this back before they even have a chance to analyze it, before, certainly before they have any chance to test its toxicity or anything. Uh, and he, he's just, a, he's, he's relying on the fact that these um, indigenous communities in Mexico have been using it for centuries, many, many generations with no increased incidence of cancer. He's relying on that as evidence that it's not toxic. So he's taking a whole bunch of it. And he's taking it himself again. Uh, Rosenberg is kind of monitoring his experiments, but he'll take it and report these bizarre trips and have them recorded and then black out for hours at a time towards the end of that trip. And he wants to know what's happening during those blackouts. And he's near dangerous levels per dose of this stuff, so he doesn't want to increase the dosage, so they decide, I know, let's go use an isolation tank like we used to when we were kids. <laughs> That's a phrase you never expected. <laughs> and uh, so he... They, they start this series of experiments where he's taking this drug while in isolation tank experiments. And this is where we get to the fact that a lot of this is inspired by the work done by John Lilly, who's a real-life scientist who also freaked himself out with ketamine. Is not a guy I would consider a, a, a role model. But he was an interesting scientist and wrote some interesting books, and that's clearly part of what Jessup is based on. But yeah, he's doing this, this comp, these experiments which combine sensory deprivation and these, uh, these drugs so that the experience of the drug is the only thing you have to go on. And then things get weird. Oh my goodness, things get really weird here. And they, they've kind of like, they lay out all these pieces in front of you and then put them together. And there's something almost like small scale magic trick about it of of um, like the, the the look at the look at this isolation tank and look at these this powerful uh drug there's nothing up my sleeve but when i mix them together huzzah <laughs> that that reveal is so smoothly done but it's it's put they he's in the tank 
and he starts making these odd noises. And after he's like describing becoming a primitive human, he starts right. making weird noises. He comes out of the thing and he mouth is full of blood and he can't speak. And they're they're he's desperately like asking to like write and he scrawls down that he needs an x-ray and that blood work up and blood work and i i I, my the the best scene i gotta say is the is uh yosemite like saying okay i'll take your i'll get your x-ray and gets the x-ray done and it's you know i'm not gonna believe that you're saying you've got uh a change to your throat like a that there's pre-man simian structures in your throat that's why i can't that's why he couldn't speak at first yeah it's like i'm not gonna believe that i'm gonna get someone who can actually you know read an x-ray to to confirm this i'm not believing you on this and he walks into the radiology lab and hands them to the guy (laughs) yeah do me a favor take a look at these what's the story in this case 35-year-old white male, acute onset of aphasia, no history of trauma. What are you looking for? Well, it looks to me like the architecture is somewhat abnormal. Somewhat. This guy's a f***ing gorilla. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. <laughs> yep, That the this story has just shifted into sit in a bath and take some drugs, you come out a monkey. <laughs> And we had a little bit of a hint about that because when they were talking to the people in Mexico who were conducting this ceremony, told him that this drug and this ceremony will allow you to encounter your original self, your first self, your primal self. So it's not a huge shock when, in the isolation tank under the influence of the drug, Jessup is describing seeing and then becoming a proto humanoid creature. But then for him to come out of the uh, of the isolation tank and have some of the physical characteristics of this kind of creature, well, that's bringing us back to what he was saying about schizophrenia patients or experiencers having physiology that changes somehow. And I have no idea if there's any real science behind that or that's just cool stuff for the movie. Yeah, there's some... The entire thing, it's... I mean, it's completely ignoring E equals MC squared and energy matter conversion and such, but it it has fun setting up this this connection between the the thought and the events in the the hallucination and the reality here. When he the the altered state of mind has an altered state of being equivalency there, and it it really uses that to explore a little bit of what we're dealing with here, both in terms of how far will our main character go and what is it that this is going to lead him to. And I think that it's, it's uh, Mason Parrish's response to this, his reaction to this that helps sell the importance of it because he's the idea the guy who is, insisting that none of this is real and it's all uh he's all just going crazy because of these drugs he's taking and yet he takes the uh cloth that they use to wipe up some of the blood that was in jessup's mouth with no sign of any trauma that suggesting that it's his own blood and he burns that sample as if he doesn't want it tested because he's afraid he knows it's going to be something inexplicable and he he he's a doctor. He knew how to read that X-ray well enough to tell that this was not normal human structures in, in Jessup's throat when they took the X-ray, and yet he kept insisting, "No, it's this. We got we we must be." He kept telling Jessup, "You're reading them wrong." I think he was telling himself, "I'm reading them wrong. I need to go find a radiologist." And of course, the radiologist confirms what he uh, what he didn't want to admit, and it's all of that resistance on May- Parrish's part that makes it seem more important and more dramatic. Yeah, you're right. It is. This is a movie of supporting cast and his interaction there, that support is exactly what's making it happen. So of course this supporting cast, all of whom care about Jessup and we can argue, why is that? (laughs) Uh, They insist that he rests and that he doesn't do any more of these experiments before we 
examine this drug some more and find and examine you some more and finding out find out what's happening here. So what does Jessup do? Of course, he takes more of the drug and goes to the isolation tank himself without even Rosenberg to watch him and takes another drug trip in the isolation tank. And then the isolation tank opens. And what comes out does not look like Dr. Jessup. Nope. What comes out is a little four or so foot tall hairy humanoid like the one he was describing having become earlier. And this humanoid then runs around the building and runs around town and gets into all kinds of violent adventures. If you can, if, if you have it right when he, le- when he escapes the room, uh, knocking over the janitor and running out of the building, cue Twilight Zone ending point. So you're saying this is kind of the same theory we had when we watched The Incredible Hulk and said, okay, let's end it at the, when he first turns into the Hulk. Yeah, we, we've, we've done this with a couple of shows now where there are points where you can take this story and if you don't keep going, you've got an episode of one of these anthology series. You've got a Twilight Zone episode. That is one of those points where in all of this, he succeeds. He actually got back there. And he, now it, runs away. Yeah, it is one more story in the, the long list of stories about what comes of these Faustian bargains. You wanted to get in touch with your original self? Great. Your original self is a proto-human from a couple of million years ago. Congratulations. That's who you are now. This is one of those instances, though, where his Faustian bargain jumps into the zoo, has a really, really long edited sequence of just kind of messing around in the <laughs> zoo a little bit too long yeah they could have tightened that up for such a fast-paced movie when in most cases most segment sections fast-paced they could have sped that up along uh, a little bit i mean he he already he gets out of the tank and is running around the basement of this building in harvard and winds up being chased by and then seriously injuring a custodian and a security guard escaping from the building having these encounters with wild dogs. I guess there's a big wild dog problem in Cambridge. And then, as you say, runs into the zoo and hangs out with the animals for a while, kills a goat and eats it. If the zoo scene had more signage of which zoo it was, I think they funded it. The fact <laughs> that it doesn't means me, makes me think they just messed around in the zoo. The fact that they spend so long also at the gift shop looking in the window makes me think again, did the zoo toss them some funding? Or maybe they had they paid the zoo to film there, and the producers said, if we paid money to the zoo, you're going to include X number of minutes of a zoo. Yeah, that might, their money's worth. that might be the case. But it's, yeah, he, he messes around and kills a goat, and his Faustian bargain wears off eventually. Right. That's so, something that doesn't happen in a lot of these stories. Yeah, just like, uh, just like Banner, uh, who does not remain the Hulk forever, Jessup does not remain a proto-human forever as the drug wears off. Um, in the morning, uh, a zoo employee or police officer finds a naked Dr. Edward Jessup next to the carcass of a partially devoured goat in the enclosure in the zoo. And his friends come and bail him out of jail and such and, of course, do not believe Jessup's description of what happened. Not that Jessup can describe in complete detail what happened, because he his memories of the time when he was this other proto-human are limited to what that being could understand. So he understood the animals and the dogs, but had no idea what the buildings and streets and cars were. He it it's literally recorded on the the level of equipment he had in that sense. Right. And I liked that part. That was very, very... In a movie that decides to ignore some of its science, that was really very nicely scientifically clear. As to, like, no, I can't... I wouldn't have been able to. Oh, wait. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll listen to that. That makes a lot of sense to me in terms of how the structure works of what you were and what you are now. Mm Mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. That was a neat bit. It was like, it's still you, but it's, you're limited to the form of you, or you're expanded by the form of So after this, after we, we as the audience see clearly, and Jessup, as far as he can tell, knows that he really did transform into some other kind of being when he took this drug again, 
and went into the isolation tank again. Then, of course, these other responsible scientists around him confiscate his drug, contact the university's ethics uh, committee, make sure he doesn't do this again, and he gets the the proper guidance that he needs. Right? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. No, of course not. This is Edward Jessup. This is Altered States. So what happens? He takes more of the drug. Second verse, same as the first. And he goes back into the isolation tank. And his friends are all there because they're so concerned about him. They're all there to watch and to help and to... I don't know what. I, I... I guess they think they can take down a monkey better than a trained and armed guard? I guess. I guess that's... I don't know. I'll give them credit. They at least know to expect monkey. True. The guard was not prepared for monkey. If I come out of that tank and report it, I'll be in a very primitive state and impossible to relate to, so sedate me while I'm still in the tank. Otherwise, you'll have to chase me around and subdue me. I'll tell you one thing. You come out of that tank looking like an ape, and I'm going over to Mass Metal and commit myself. I kind of wanted, like, just a little moment of his ex-wife Emily, like, testing a taser or something for a moment. (laughs) That would have kind of fit what was going on here. Because we're going to be here for your science, but we're also here to kick your butt. That would have made sense, yeah. But but this time, he doesn't come out of the box as a a proto-humanoid. He goes further. He goes beyond the beginning of himself, goes beyond the beginning of the human race, apparently goes beyond the beginning of life, beyond the beginning of the universe. And it's, I'm trying to use uh, uh, language now to describe things that are presented incredibly well and incredibly impressively and so captivatingly in the visuals of, of this movie that... You know, I didn't really think about this when I said we should do this movie for the podcast. It is so hard to talk about because it is so visual. And and the, the score, of course, adds to that. But they really are presenting these fascinating, dramatic concepts without language, mm-hmm. instead just using cinema. This is a pictorial essay in that sense. And we watch reversed footage of Cell Division to show him going all the way back. And then we see, I think it was a zooming out, but they were using it like a star field collapsing back to a point. And he's now, and they show from the side of this very interestingly clearly shaped isolation tank. this, This cube with one edge cut off for its hatch. And But it has this very distinct outline, especially in right. the way they've decorated the room, so that when it starts blinking opposite to the room, that hard line of difference becomes clear that this space is not the tank anymore. This space is something else. And then the tank is gone, and there's just bright burning light. Yeah, there is no question that this is a real event this is not just the subjective experience of dr jessup things are exploding pipes are bursting and being torn out of the walls like you said the tank disappears and is replaced by flashing lights and fire and whirlpools of smoke and such which the others are trying to wade through and deal with and our audience surrogate watching this on the screen falls over from yeah, the force. That was weird. I, I it was almost as if they had to get him knocked out somehow. But I almost thought maybe it was some kind of hypnotic effect of what he was observing through the monitors. He what we see is connection happening. Oh. He's connected through the visual. He's watching it. It hits him first. Then we see our other scientist attempt to handle the situation i think he grabs something and goes to do something and it takes him out right he makes a a tactile connection and then emily goes in and makes a human connection and makes a, a social connection calling out for him for the singular person right. 
And that kind and of brings him back. Pulls him back in. Right. Her connection, she's able to make it through. Just watching, just physically interacting, get both of them knocked on their butts. It has to be personal. It has to be entity to entity in that way. Mm-hmm. And and we're again we're we're limited by trying to do this with spoken language. But this is a long sequence. Really long and yet, sequence. It never to me it never seemed too long because there's so much packed into it that I, I just love that that uh, that whole sequence. And 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 yeah, eventually she does kind of bring him back out of it and and we're left with the destroyed uh isolation tank room, no sign of the tank, the uh, the, the walls are you know, crumbling and everything else. And it's just the two of them. Is it covered under insurance as act of God if you went back and became him for a second? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Yeah? Maybe, yeah I hope so. <laughs> for the, for, for the, the, for the university's sake. And that, that's also a point where I thought the movie might end, but they keep going just to be able to make a little bit of an extra point at the end, and I liked that. They do. And this is where the biggest diversion from the novel comes. And I'm going to talk about that a bit later. But you're right. They, they eventually get him home. Uh, I guess they, they managed to wake up Parrish and, and Rosenberg. And there's this long scene of everybody talking about their own response to this. Rosenberg is freaking out because now he is arguing that it's undeniable. This is a real physical phenomenon that totally undermines everything we know about physics and psychology and everything. And Parrish is still somehow trying to deny it. And Emily's just worried about him. Right. She's focused on him and what he's been through and uh, Jessup and, uh, and what, what he needs, which is kind of her role. She's the nurturing character and the character who is very selfless in that way. Mm-hmm. Before we go too far, we did miss a scene previously yeah. in our review, which is he, while they were separated with a, I believe they implied it was a student, has this bit of a lingering transformation effect. Yeah. And I don't know if it was a student or somebody else he knew from the university. There's a lot that in 2019 would be tangled up in there that we don't need to go into. But mm-hmm. yeah, I wonder about that. But anyway, he was with someone else and they're just sleeping at the time. And he has this transformation bit, but we see this very, very creepy effect of his arms, like, bulging and moving, and true his, his body doing so. This is having an effect even when he's not in the tank. Right, I forgot. That is important, too, because it shows how these linger. And that was after the trip during which he claimed to have become the simian creature, and that was backed up by the x-rays is that correct i believe so but it was before the actual monkey climbed out of the box right okay so yeah that was showing this is not limited to a couple of hours or five hours under the drugs influence so that means that when he's come back from going so much further they finally think he's okay and are the two two uh leads leave so it's just jessup and emily there and kind of this is Finally, like, going that far and being pulled back finally broke through some of his, his, you know, I don't want to be dealing with other people. I want to focus on my work. Right. His work finally scared him, I think. <laughs> and he finally, he starts saying, you know, no, I should care about the people, but now I'm dangerous and I shouldn't. He's still finding a way to isolate himself, but for the opposite reason in some ways now. Right. He talks about this after that final trip, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, he talks about the he he's faced the absolute hideous void at the end of all at the beginning and end of all things. And yet he still cares about people, but he can't be around people. Kinda wanna just slap him at that point <laughs> right. in some ways. Which the universe kind of does. The universe does by he starts transforming again. And now he's transforming into this weird multicolor melting flesh creepiness yeah there's like a bit of the monkey mode in there but there's plenty of just like inverse filter on the teal screen with him (laughs) but and lots of weird latex application effects cut in there too 
And I think he does turn into sloth from the Goonies for a moment there with some of this. <laughs> yeah, I can see that connection. But he's he's like rapidly alternating and Emily attempts to pull him out of it again. And instead, she gets zapped with this and starts transforming as well. Right, into this it, strange electric magma sort of apparently painful st- body. I don't know. I'm just realizing that there's a shark boy and lava girl joke in here (laughs) that never needs to be made. (laughs) But anyway, this is now communicable? Apparently. Apparently. I guess he was right when he said he shouldn't be around people. I guess he's right. But seeing what this is doing to her now, he slams himself against the wall. And I did not know that was a reference to this movie until now. The video? The video. The aha video for Take On Me. Pipe wrench fight. <laughs> Pipe wrench fight. I, I know the literal music video version better than I do the actual song. But yeah. The yeah. end of that video, that was absolutely lifted directly from um, that, uh, that last dramatic scene from Altered States, where he's uh, trying to, through force of will, pull himself back into normal reality and he succeeds and then him grabbing onto emily turns her back Mm -hmm. the two of them vaporize a pair of perfectly good robes in the process but they succeed in stabilizing each other in that sense right and that whole thing cemented what i started to think about halfway through was a, a through line of the entire movie and i liked it there was so much of this movie that made me think it's about the, the, the self being defined by its interactions with others. Mm-hmm. Because when he is having this, the early like religious experience trips, he is separating himself from people, even his people he's interacting with in the moment. He's being very isolated in that sense. And he's dealing with an isolation chamber. Mm-hmm. removing himself from not only other things, but people. Someone has to call into it to pull him out of what's going on in there. And then we wind up with that moment when he's transforming after that first discussion of acting a proto-human, that first instance of outside transformation. He has these hellish visions that are dispelled when the other person in the room turns on the lamp and asks him how he is. He's in, he's in hell until he's interacting with someone else. And then we've got this big ending where the people connecting with him, not emotionally, but physically get hurt. But then dealing with him as a person, them being people define him as a person separate from whatever he has become and turn him back into him. It's kind of a, a self defined by the fact that I am among other selves. And I liked that. It's this unified, we are all individuals kind of paradoxically understandable view that it, it kind of landed in the end. And I liked that so much. In the very end of the movie, when he finally pulls himself back into reality and finally pulls Emily back into reality, he finally says, I love you. He has never not been able to say through the entire movie. To, to underline the point that you were just making. I don't know that that final message is really what grabbed me early on. It was the... It was such a wonderfully intense depiction of mad science that seemed so cutting edge and believable in a way to me at the time when I was what 15 um that it just it it captivated me in that way and there's something about the tone of this whole movie is elevated in a certain way that it's a little bit heightened reality through the entire thing the way these scientist characters are rattling off at high speed through these wonderful scientific and pseudoscientific and psychological concepts. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of Shakespearean. It's kind of 
Aaron Sorkin, but about science and philosophy instead of you know, politics and stuff. I don't know how even to put this into words, but I'm beginning to think that what happened to you last Friday night was not just a hallucinatory experience. I've got this gut feeling that something phenomenological did actually happen, that there was some kind of genetic transformation. I don't know why I think this in defiance of all rationality, but I do. And now that I do, I'm terrified. I mean, really terrified, petrified. So am I. I don't want you doing this experiment again next week. We have to find out if it actually happened. Now, I'm asking you to put the experiment off until we understand a little more in order to there minimize the no risk. There's no way you can understand this before the event. You have to work back from but the event But you may be itself. causing yourself irreversible genetic damage. No, we're dealing with genetics. We're beyond mass and matter here, beyond even energy. What we're back to is the first thought. It just it, it just drew me in. It's like, oh, these are the smart people at the edge of the universe that I want to be like. Your description of how fast they talk in such there made me realize we mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast the idea of it being a comedy in a different version. I know what that movie is. What? We've watched it. It's called Ghostbusters. <laughs> a group of people playing with pseudoscience and it turns real. And they deal with the consequences. In many ways, they start from a similarly weird little point and go in two very different directions. But there's a, there's a parallel line that they follow in that sense. Okay, I like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching, for you at home, I'm watching on my dad's face this twisting of his eyebrows as they knit together in the middle. Trying to decide if I've said something horrifying no. or very truthful. That is, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to think about that some more. Another movie that this reminds me of in terms of that dialogue is The Thing from Another World. Oh, absolutely. Which, I mean, I keep thinking of it as directed by Howard Hawks. I know he didn't have directing credit, but it was definitely in his style, and he was mentoring the, uh, the person who did direct it. That fast, quick, clever, with lots of science stuff thrown in at the appropriate times, uh, I just love that way that movies can make people seem so incredibly smart and clever and quick that there was a lot of that in this movie but this movie added the extra weight of this being about cosmically important things at least cosmically important to these characters the scope of what they want to talk about means that these tools are used and have to be used very very precisely and very well this is not, this is a quick movie in terms of its editing, and it is a, an odd movie in terms of its pacing at times, but it is never a, it is never not skillful in its use. It is a well-crafted movie in that sense. Yeah, no matter what you think of Ken Russell, and certainly your opinion of Ken Russell can be dramatically affected by his later movies, and a lot of people just think he's crazy and self-indulgent, which, gee, I wonder why he made this movie um he definitely has that technical ability and that visual and cinematic vocabulary and the drive to use it that this is in addition to being one of my favorite movies it's therefore definitely my favorite ken russell movie and you know there are also there was a lot of nakedity in this movie yeah a lot of people without their clothes on and and sometimes together uh there's a lot of sandwiches in this movie too it's like almost every scene where people are not doing mad scientist stuff, they are making or eating or delivering sandwiches or looking for condiments to put on sandwiches. I want the altered sandwiches supercut of all of those moments. <laughs> now, maybe the combination of naked people and sandwiches are what made this such a powerful movie to me when I was 15. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, if you watch this, we'll look for both of those, the naked people and the sandwiches. I don't think there are any scenes in which there are naked people with sandwiches. I think those are always separate scenes, but I don't know, maybe I missed something. I'll have to watch it again. There's at least one cold cut platter. I yes. think that counts as a naked sandwich. Oh, okay, yeah. You're right. Shall we get to our final review parts then? I guess so. I think we've, uh, we've, we've, we've wrung the cosmic truths that we can out of this movie, and... Um, so yeah, for a movie, I guess our question we can't we don't say binge or or no binge. So it's uh, watch or not. Yeah, screen or no screen. What do you think, Ian? Oh, you going to recommend is, that people watch this? This is a screen movie. It is. I absolutely say it is. This is a movie that is definitely something to go see. If you are of 
if you deal with media somewhere, it's probably one of those things you've run into references of. And I, I definitely think you should see it, but it's just, it's fun. And there are people who I've seen it online tagged as horror. And yeah. I guess on a, a psychological fridge level. Absolutely. Right. But there's, this is a movie that you could have, I could put on at noon and just be <laughs> like, you know what? I'm just going to watch this right now. I could definitely roll with that. This is a good movie, and I definitely say go see it. Well, I am pleasantly surprised to hear you say that. I, of course, am going to say absolutely watch this. If you haven't watched it, what's wrong with you? If you're not watching it now, why? Absolutely. Like I said, it's one of, one of my favorite movies of all time. Based upon your reactions while we were watching it, I really thought this was going to be more of a conversation uh, along the lines of, why did you make me watch this thing? <laughs> and how how can I stop me- remembering it? I I really didn't think you were enjoying it, and uh, and I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that that you did like it. I went back upstairs and started pulling my psych textbooks off of my uh, bookshelf to review <laughs> them. Now most of most of my psych textbooks were targeted at younger age range for various reasons. Child psychology is a whole different field than adult psychology but it's applicable to some of the ways these people act but it i was pulling textbooks i was trying to do further research the look on my face that you're seeing there was just a a like i've got to i've got to process this now kind of <laughs> mode i i loved this movie when i was watching it well great i'm glad it, it was that. it was fun in a weird way it not not a bright happy huzzah way or a, a comedic way, but it was a a fun trip in that sense, and I mean that in a fun double entendre, double meaning. The druggy movie was quite the trip kind of meaning. <laughs> well, great. So that's definitely a, a a must watch from both of us. Oh yeah. So the next question is: uh, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Rest in peace. Because I can never see how a revival of this works out that isn't something a little bit more on the Godzilla. Welp, after the movie ended, he did turn into a vortex of death. Now we're going to watch people over in New York, like, deal with the consequences of the apocalypse this this applies. And we don't really need another Altered States in terms of someone else trying to do this editing. I'd say this one's good. I I think you're probably right. I can't imagine the revival, how he could do a sequel of this, like the, the further adventures of Dr. Edward Jessup. And it's, I, you know, what happens after you're beyond the void at the end of all space and time? You could do a prequel, maybe. I guess. If but, they ever wanted to do a Katamari Damacy movie, <laughs> they could take the end of this as a starting point. Edward oh. Jessup rolls across the landscape, pulling everything into the void of doom. Oh, now I kind of want to see him cast as the king of all cosmos in that. <laughs> that works. That works too well. So, yeah, I, I can't possibly imagine how you would revive this in our terms to make any kind of a sequel, keeping what came before as canon. I don't think... I mean, somebody else could adapt the Patty Chayefsky novel, which most of which follows the the plot outlines of this movie. But I can't imagine it being done as well, or for the same reasons, or as interestingly as someone coming to it with this whole bag of, of tricks and techniques and ideas that Ken Russell brought to this. You would wind, if you did a, a more of a straightforward, if you did you know, Ron Howard's Altered States, adaptation of the novel it would be a straightforward faustian mad scientist movie it wouldn't have the power that this did so now i don't want to see a a, a reboot a remake of this either so i would have to say yeah rest in peace rest in peace as in this movie stands on its own nothing else has to be done to it it absolutely should be watched and thought about you can lovingly put it into the isolation tank and close the door and leave knowing it'll be all okay and then planet of the apes comes out (laughs) afterward right Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that that is it for uh, for this edition of the uh, the IWMP. If you want to reach us uh, about the podcast, you can uh, you can find the podcast at IMM Project 
com, where you can find all of our back episodes and contact information and other things. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. And Ian, where can people find you? Hey, you can find me at ItemCrafting on Twitter or ItemCrafting.com or ItemCraftingLive on Twitch. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter, or you can find me online at uh, MatthewFPorter.com, and there are two T's in Matthew. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more um, tales of uh, of movies or TV or books or comics or other things that I subject Ian to. I don't think so, Dad. No? No. Because we just watched a movie about some strange vegetables, so I think that we're going to be going to some some different tales next time. Oh. I I might be taking over for a round. Well, I, I better go prepare myself for this. So, um, so uh, yeah, come back and, and see what we're doing next time. <laughs> and remember, in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>